The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. As I prepared for this message, I was just thinking about the privilege it is that, that we have to sit under God's Word. Even as I stand and preach for you today, I too am under God's word. I have no authority and nothing of lasting value to offer apart from God's word. The author of Hebrews uh, commends to the local church he's writing to, he commends their leaders. And his first description of those leaders is those who spoke to you the word of God. What the scriptures commend is what we, your pastors, are seeking to do faithfully Sunday after Sunday. And it's our joy to offer you his life-giving and life-shaping word each week. Now, I hope you benefited from Rob Flood's preaching last Sunday. If you weren't with us and haven't listened to that sermon, I recommend that you uh, make some time to listen to that during the course of this week. Rob showed us from Psalm 119 how to put truth to work. That's something that we're always going to need to be doing as we follow Jesus. On the Sunday before last, I preached part one of a sermon from Psalm 32. And today I want to continue and complete our journey through that particular psalm. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. And we're going to continue to contemplate and rejoice in and respond to the blessing of forgiveness. In verses 1 to 5, David celebrated the blessing of forgiveness, one of the greatest blessings that we can enjoy. And he told us his story, illustrating the gift of conviction, which is miserable to experience, yet a mercy from God, as he moves us to be honest about our sin. So this psalm has been shaping what we value, but it also means to shape how we behave. It doesn't merely offer us testimony, but teaching. So let's give our attention to God's word then as I read Psalm 32. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For... When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Who's familiar with Aesop's fables? See, a few hands there. Not, not enough hands, kind of. <laughs> no, I, I figure that we must have had a book of them as children because they are just, uh, they, they're attached to my memory. They're just woven into the tapestry of my imagination. Even if you don't recognize the name, I'm sure you've heard at least a few of them in one form or another, like the boy who cried wolf. Who knows that story? That's better, yeah. Or the hare and the tortoise, right? Right, yeah. So Aesop was a slave and a storyteller who lived in ancient Greece uh, 600 years or so before Jesus came to earth. Fables attributed to him were passed down in oral tradition for hundreds of years before they were actually written down. They were simple yet fictional stories uh, populated with animals and plants and people. But the key is that the stories all carried a lesson which would be emphasized at the end. So the boy who cried wolf, for example, warns us of the dangers of being dishonest. The result being that when you actually speak the truth, people are unlikely to trust you. And the hare and the tortoise teaches us that the race is not always for the swift. Oh, and that pride comes before a fall. Even simple fictional stories can teach us wisdom. That's applicable to all of us, despite our many differences. How much more can we learn then from the real-life experiences of those that God raised up to lead his people? We've already covered the first five verses of Psalm 32. Verse 6 begins, therefore, making it clear that, like Aesop's fables, the psalmist David means to tell his story and underline a lesson. He wants us all to benefit from his experience and to join in his rejoicing. Now, I already summarized the whole psalm, and I'm not going to alter the big idea from last time. This is what we had said. Revel in the blessing of full forgiveness and learn to respond readily to conviction with confession. The wisdom of this psalm is what we'll focus on now in verses 6 through 11. Wisdom aims to guide us through the experiences and understanding of others rather than going through those experiences for ourselves. That's what's on offer here. David has shared his painful story and how he experienced God's readiness to forgive, and now he wants us to learn to respond readily to conviction with confession. So we're going to dive into the details of David's instruction and encouragement in verses 6 through to 11. So focus with me now on verses 6 and 7. Here, David begins to draw out the lesson from the reality he celebrated in verses 1 and 2 and his story that he told in verses 3 to 5. He's doing what we often do, giving counsel based on our experience. You know, we'll say something like, boy, that movie was so good, you know, you really should see it. Or, what, you're going to the tax office? All right, here what? Here's the best time to go, because I went at that time and I got to really quickly. Or don't, don't bother drive that way. I, I, I took it and it took forever. I figured there's an accident around that side or something. The problem with this type of counsel is that there are variables that could rob it of value. My taste in movies might be quite different from yours. You might go to the tax office at what I say is a good time, but several employees are out sick that day and you end up with a long wait. Traffic congestion can, can change quickly. So why should we listen then when David teaches based on his experience with God. Well, traffic congestion can change, but God's nature and his commitments don't. 
David's experience with God helped him to understand God's nature and therefore the nature of life when you're in relationship with God. And there are no variables to account for with God. James 1.17 tells us, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So when David points the way to the blessings of forgiveness, we can follow his directions with confidence. There are a lot of therefores that we should be skeptical about, but you can bank on this one. So, what instruction does David give then? He tells us to pray. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. The therefore tells us that the prayer David has in mind is not just prayer in general, but confession specifically. He's advising us to do what he described in his story, to acknowledge our sin, to uncover our iniquity, and to confess our transgression. Recognizing that the prayer in verse 6 is confession opens our eyes to a magnificent yet unintuitive truth. Godly people are not sinless people. Godly people are not sinless people. They trust in God by eagerly confessing their sin. As a young Christian, both in faith and age, I thought that being a Christian meant that I needed to be a good person. And being a good person meant that I was not to sin. Now, of course, I knew I couldn't be perfect, but I thought that doing well meant not being messy and not having these glaring issues. But in turn, that meant to acknowledge sin, to acknowledge sin to myself or to God or to others, was to acknowledge that I was failing at being a Christian. And failure, of course, is bad. So that meant that there were these many years during which I would share with people, you know, I, yeah, I'm struggling with this or that, and I'm struggling with this. You know, and I couldn't deny those things, but it, I never wanted to acknowledge them as sins, which I needed to confess and repent of. No, I knew what Romans 3.23 said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I thought that should have been entirely in the past, rather than a present experience. Ironically, the kind that the Apostle Paul describes just a few chapters later in chapter 7. No, here's the thing. That misunderstanding had concrete effects on my relationship with God. Instead of offering prayer, I offered blame, like Adam and Eve. I offered arguments, like Cain. I offered justifications like Saul. Let me borrow a helpful category from Rob Flood. If our functional theology leaves us reluctant to own and confess our sin, then it's misshapen. Let me say that again. If our functional theology, the faith we're actually living with day to day, leaves us reluctant to own and confess our sin, then it's misshapen. This morning, God wants to narrow the gap between the faith we live and the faith we profess. And what he's saying to us hinges on that therefore. Embracing the blessing of forgiveness and the grace of conviction should lead us to readily confess our sins. Being godly does not mean being sinless. That will be the case in the age to come, but it's certainly not the case now. And as we live in this fallen world, as we are being sanctified and we're battling temptations coming at us from the outside and our sinful desires rising up, on the inside, the life of God is, is, is manifested not in the absence of sin, but in our attitude to it. 
The commentator, Alan P. Ross, offers his assistance. The devout are the people who are in covenant with God, who desire to love and serve the Lord, but who often find that they need forgiveness in order to maintain a proper relationship with the Lord. Our need to confess sin is not in the way of our relationship with God. It's the means by which we maintain fellowship with God. And this applies to our relationship with others also. If being godly does not mean being sinless, then we can confess our sins to each other. When we, when we looked at verses 1 to 5, we saw that David is calling us to this also. And that such confession brings us out of hiding and into fellowship with one another. So all of this means then that there's reason to rejoice when we have confessed sin. No, I, I, I point this out because I don't know how you tend to feel about confessing sin. I know many of us can carry this low-level guilt or even high-level guilt even after confessing sin. You know, we're still feeling the effects of what we've done. We're still feeling bad about ourselves. And one of the things the psalm is trying to do is re-engineer our emotions around confessing sin. Notice that joy is the dominant tone of this psalm. Yes, there's the agony of conviction portrayed here. Yes, we must learn to mourn and grieve over our sins and our sinfulness as other psalms like Psalm 51 or other texts like uh, the book of James teach us. But here in Psalm 32, joy is overflowing. Uh, it, it, it reminds me, you know, so, so think with me of, of the story of what we call the prodigal son, which is really the story of the father and his two sons. Uh, Think about when the son who was wayward comes back home. And you, if you know the story, you'll remember that he had gone away. He had seriously dishonored his father. And he's coming back now and he has a speech prepared. Because he recognizes the impact of what he's done. So he's prepared his speech and he's coming to his father. And you can, you can picture him rehearsing it in his head as he's walking up the road with his head down. And he looks up to see that his father has run to meet him. And he starts his speech and his father doesn't even let him finish. His father hugs him, kisses him, restores him, says, bring the robe and bring the ring. No, imagine that son saying, no, 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 dad, no, no, no. I wasn't finished with my speech. You know, I had things I needed to say here, and I, I really want to keep feeling bad about myself. You know, I can't, I can't come into the party right now. The whole party thing you have to welcome me back, I can't do that. I need a couple of months, you know, before, before I, I, I'm ready to receive you know, your love and your acceptance. C could you give me my room, please? You know? That's my concern for us. That God has opened his arms. <laughs> when we confess and he's like, child. And we're like, just, just, I, I need to feel bad. I think that's what's going to help me right now. Continuing to feel bad. So, the dominant tone in this psalm that's meant to shape our relationship with confession and receiving forgiveness is joy. It's, this, it's recognizing I am blessed. No, in the story, you can see that this boy will know he's blessed. He does not deserve to be, in, to be, to be celebrated over. Yet that's what's happening. So let's do some diagnostic work then. When you sin, when you really sin, when you blow it big time, when, when you do so yet again, do you confess your sin to God and others? When you sin in smaller ways, do you call it what it is or do you kind of brush over it? 
If we don't, then it's likely that we don't truly believe in a way that functions in our everyday lives that being forgiven is the good life and that God freely forgives us when we confess our sins. And if you recognize that to be the case for you today, then God is graciously at work showing you your reflection in the mirror of his word. Now, you can respond to that right now. You can begin to respond to that right now. You don't even need to wait till the end of the service. You can respond by confessing that to him. I mean, it could sound something like this. Father, it's clear that I do not value and rejoice in forgiveness the way that you do. I don't want to need forgiveness, and I don't run towards you in confession. I cover my sin because I hate being exposed. Please change my heart. Teach me to revel in the blessing of forgiveness. The instruction of this psalm speaks not only to our actions, but also to the assurance that we should feel in our relationship with God. That, that links back into that, that, that story of, of the son returning to his father. That's what we see in the second half of verse 6 and, ver- and in verse 7. David confidently speaks of the personal assurance he has of God's salvation. The flood imagery of verse 6 implies that the godly will, be sh- will surely be saved from God's judgment. And there's a beautiful sighting of Jesus right here. Just as the ark brought Noah and his family safely through the water, we are brought safely through the waters of death in Jesus by being united to him. 1 Peter 3.21 teaches that baptism symbolizes this journey through the waters to life. So when we are baptized, we're saying to everyone that we have trusted in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection for us, and that we are in him like Noah was in the ark for the whole journey home. In fact, verse 7 puts in words what we say of Jesus in baptism, what we say as those who are in Christ. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, if you have trusted in Jesus, but you have not yet been baptized, we'd love to talk to you about serving you in that way. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, we'd be glad to help you to do so also. Let's ask a few more questions about the assurance that this psalm is leading our hearts to experience. When you confess your sins to God, in those moments and in the aftermath, do you feel confident of his full and free acceptance? Do you hold your head up high and sing of the blessings of forgiveness? Or do you feel like you need to do better for a season, to restore your track record before you can represent God? Are you assured that God is your hiding place? Or do you feel like you need to keep hiding from him and from others? Do you backbench yourself and shy away from serving God and others? <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, don't, don't do me that this morning. <laughs> Sarah fully moved her chair forward <laughs> a while ago. In those times, do you hold on to how you feel about yourself or what God says about you? Do you cling to the sackcloth of your shame or to the radiant clothes of Christ's righteousness? Now, all of these questions are designed to help us to wrestle with whether we truly rejoice over the blessings of forgiveness in theory or, but, but, but kind of fail to experience them in practice. Because, you know, we can do that. We can read this psalm and affirm, yes, blessed is the man. But when we are actually in need of the blessing of forgiveness, we can behave like something different is going on. 
See, I don't appreciate God's forgiveness on paper, but not when I sin and actually need it. I want my joy to be dependent on Christ's performance on my behalf and not on how well I feel like I'm doing in the moment. That's why this song encourages us to pray in response to conviction and to be assured of God's forgiveness. And that must be enough for us. You see, many of us have found ourselves trapped and tortured by the notion that we need to forgive ourselves for sins that we've committed. We grieve over the way that the ways that we've hurt others and, uh, and our sin has hurt us and dishonored God. And, and that's good. You know, and we're, we're grateful that God won't condemn us, but we feel like we simply cannot get over what we've done. But you see, the idea of forgiving oneself is not in the Bible. The pastor and author H.B. Charles offers us an uncompromising dose of truth that can lead us into freedom. To claim that I have been forgiven by God but cannot forgive myself betrays that I do not understand, believe, or appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sinister attempt of the enemy to get us to depend on our own righteousness rather than the grace of God. Let me read it for you again. To claim that I have been forgiven by God but cannot forgive myself betrays that I do not understand, believe, or appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sinister attempt of the enemy to get us to depend on our own righteousness rather than the grace of God. So next time you're wrestling with that guilt that you struggle and feel like you can't let go of, picture Jesus on the cross bleeding for you and saying it's finished. It's enough. And recognize that he's extending grace to you freely and fully. This is not about forgiving yourself. This is about receiving his grace and recognizing that he has clothed you in righteousness. The grace offered by the psalm is that it allows us to come face to face with our sin, yet trust and rejoice in the Lord in the light of the blessing of forgiveness. Look with me at, at verse 7 in this psalm. There are promises embedded in the confident affirmation of this verse. God will preserve the godly from trouble. God's commitment to protecting the godly comes out often in the Proverbs and in the Psalms. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, meaning he approves of and watches over their path. We want to be careful not to paint a picture of a life without trouble if we're godly. Of course, that wasn't the case for Jesus. That's, our, that's, our, that, that's what saves us from that trap of thinking that if we obey God, if we keep his commandments, everything should go well. Well, Jesus did it perfectly and he suffered. Yet at the same time, we can acknowledge that trusting in God often brings us into safer places, into safer waters than living in rebellion to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I mess up in big ways, often my concern is for God to rescue me from the damage my sin has done to relationships and opportunities and even my standing in the eyes of others. The preservation promised here is not necessarily from consequences, but from the greater danger of condemnation by God. Now, David's life, David who wrote this psalm, his life illustrates this very well. He experienced some very painful consequences uh, for, for sin. Uh, the death of the son who was born to Bathsheba after their adultery, being ousted from his throne for a season by his own son, Absalom's insurrection. But David was never condemned by God because God forgave all his sins. And if that doesn't seem fair, that's because it's not. It's mercy. Mercy is not fear. 
But it's magnificent, isn't it? And we are all in need of it. And we're assured of it if we follow the instruction given in this psalm. But alongside that instruction in verse 6 is an unnerving caveat. We're taught to pray to God at a time when he may be found. Now that does not sound good. It kind of sounds a bit like God has office hours and you might miss them, you know? Alan Ross offers us some needed assistance once more. He says the Bible uses language like this to describe our situation more than God's availability. That is, the circumstances that would prompt us to pray, a window of opportunity. The New Living Translation gets at that by saying, pray while there is still time. The Christian Standard Bible does also. It says, pray immediately. Have you ever noticed that when you ignore the conviction of God's Holy Spirit, that it subsides after a while? You know, Jesus is banging at the door trying to get our attention, but after a while, he stops. He's calling our phone repeatedly and we're trying to ghost him. And then the calls stop. That's not good. We should feel uneasy at that point rather than relieved. You see, Jesus isn't going to go away. He's committed to us forever. If we refuse to respond to conviction, the next loving means he's going to employ is discipline. He's going to deconstruct every barrier that we erect to save us from ourselves and for himself. And that is much more painful than the conviction described in verses 3 and 4. That's why David gives us this counsel. When God makes you aware of your sins, ask for forgiveness at that moment. Respond readily to conviction with confession. Because it's better than resisting and experiencing God's discipline. Now that bridges us really well to verses 8 and 9. Look with me there in your Bibles. I will instruct you and teach you in the way... You should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, the language here is not subtle, so we'd have to try pretty hard to miss the point. Don't be like a horse or a mule. Willingly cooperate when God, with God as he teaches you. Now, if you've ever read the script for a play, you'll notice that it normally indicates which character is about to speak. One of the things that makes reading the Psalms and some prophetic literature difficult is that they can switch voices without notation or warning. So who's speaking here? It's pretty clear in verse 7 that David is speaking to God. But here in verses 8 and 9, the same pronoun you can't be referring to the same person. David is not about to attempt to instruct God. It could be that David is now instructing his audience as God's spokesman. Or it could be that God was replying to David. But we can say much more. In these verses, God is speaking to us right now by his Holy Spirit. No, that's a massive and significant claim. So I need to back it up. The New Testament letter entitled Hebrews is essentially a sermon. We don't know who wrote it, but it shapes our understanding of preaching. This is Hebrews 3, 7 to 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. The author here is quoting from Psalm 95, which incidentally offers us a warning very similar to the one we have in front of us in Psalm 32. But notice how he frames that quotation. As the Holy Spirit says. 
By using present, test, present tense, sorry, he's indicating that when God's word is preached, God speaks again in the present moment. It's not merely that he spoke in the past. He speaks in the present through the preached word. No, that changes how we ought to listen, doesn't it? We're not observers at the back of a lecture hall auditing a course being taught by David you know, with our notebooks there, listening in as he speaks to his students and aiming to glean whatever we can for ourselves. We are, in fact, face-to-face with God, our maker and redeemer. So listen again to these verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. These verses represent God's commitment to you. The God who upholds the entire universe is committed to attentively instructing, teaching, and counseling you. He will give you understanding. He will show you the way and and advise you in his boundless wisdom. And his challenge to you is don't be like a horse or a mule. Aesop actually has a fable that illustrates this really well. It's entitled The Ass and His Driver. And it's very short. Let me read it for you. An ass was being driven along a road leading down the mountainside when he suddenly took it into his silly head to choose his own path. He could see his stall at the foot of the mountain and to him the quickest way down seemed to be over the edge of the nearest cliff. Just as he was about to leap over, his master caught him by the tail and tried to pull him back. But the stubborn ass would not yield and pulled with all his might. Very well, said his master. Go your way, you willful beast, and and see where it leads you. With that, he let go, and the foolish ass tumbled head over heels down the mountainside. So here's the moral. They who will not listen to reason but stubbornly go their own way against the friendly advice of those who are wiser than they are on the road to misfortune. You got to love Aesop, don't you? (laughs) You see, you can't reason with a horse or mule. They're led by instincts and appetites, not by instructions. You you, You put a bit in their mouth and a bridle around their neck so you can turn them around and control them and urge them on. And as we see in the movies, if you're not holding on to the reins of that animal, and, or if it isn't tied up, it will instinctively bolt and run off if it's startled for any reason. God wants us to respond to him like attentive students, not resist him like stubborn animals. Let me say it again. God wants us to respond to him like attentive students, listening to a beloved teacher, not resist him like stubborn animals. No, he's a much better master than the one in Aesop's fable. He will not let those whom he has set his love on destroy themselves. But he does not want to force us into compliance. He wants intelligent cooperation, as Derek Kidna puts it really well. For many years now, I have been fascinated by the transfiguration scene in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9. We preached that. I think you preached that one, huh, Sean? Yeah. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up, up to a high mountain, and for a few moments, his radiant glory was unveiled for them to see. Mark's gospel, as if you think of the chapters before that, makes it clear that Jesus was inherently glorious and inherently powerful. Surely he could compel obedience by force. And that's what makes the message from heaven in that moment so striking. This is my beloved son. 
listen to him. On the cross, God's beloved son shielded us from danger that would have consumed us. That's how we can be sure that his instructions are not leading us away from the good life, but into it. Listen to him. I wonder if a lot of us, when we cannot escape from our sin, are glad to have the Lord as our hiding place, as the psalm says to us. We're relieved that we will not suffer the judgment of hell forever. But as glad as we are to receive God's forgiveness, we're not nearly as inclined to listen to his instructions. We still want to go our own way. We still want to choose our own path. When we need to, you know, when we need to, we run and we touch the base of forgiveness, but then run off again to play tag with sin. God, as our hiding place. What? Repeat? Repeat. Yeah, I mean, you guys know the game. We'd play it as kids. You know, there'd be a base. Maybe it would be a place or a person. And you're chasing around, you know. Yeah, or, or it's the cross in, yeah, in, in this case. And when you, need, when you need safety, you run. And you hold on to the base. And you can't get tagged. But then when... You feel like a little more adventurous. You just you run back out and you're, you're running around and you're dodging. And I feel like we do that with sin, don't we? When we are under pressure, when it's overwhelming us, we are ready to run to Jesus and be like, please, save. But then it's like, but I want some fun. I want to flirt with the danger. I want to see if I can run by it without getting tagged, you know? We see, this psalm commends to us two things in this section. God as our hiding place and God as our teacher. The psalm wants us, David wants us to experience both of those blessings in, in fellowship with God. The psalm invites us to enjoy his protection both ultimately and daily and to heed his instruction as we respond to conviction. And all three of those are part and parcel of trusting in the Lord. So, I've given myself a lot of room this morning to dismantle this psalm up to this point so that you can see how it works and the ways it's challenging us. I'm going to be much briefer with these last two verses. Verses 10 and 11 echo the promises we've seen in verses 6 and 7, contrasting the security the righteous enjoy with the many sorrows that are experienced by the wicked. And in these verses, God encourages the righteous to rejoice in his loving forgiveness and protection and instruction. He encourages the righteous to rejoice in his loving forgiveness, protection, and instruction. So, this psalm which started with David rejoicing in the blessing of forgiveness ends with a command to those who trust in the Lord to rejoice in him. Again, the psalms mean not only to instruct us, but to shape our emotions. John Piper, in preaching on this text, explains how this encouragement at the end connects with that central theme of prayer back in verse 6 where we started today. When it is the Lord who makes us glad, we will find ourselves coming to him often in prayer rather than seeking our kicks somewhere else. So being glad in the Lord is the cause of our praying to him. But also when we pray to him and discover in his fellowship the sweetness of forgiveness and protection and counsel, then the delight we have in him only increases. So being glad in the Lord is an effect of our praying to him. So we're being invited then not into mechanical obedience, but into life with God. Not a mere transaction, but a joy-filled relationship. Today, 
God's Spirit has instructed and encouraged us with the wisdom of this psalm. He means to usher us into the good life by leading us to revel in the blessing of full forgiveness and learn to respond readily to conviction with confession. He's calling us from stubbornness to intelligent cooperation with Him. He wants us to trust in Him by eagerly confessing our sins when convicted and to rejoice in His forgiveness, protection, and instruction. Now, I've asked a number of questions today. I have one more for you. If there is some particular thing in your heart and life that God put His finger on, would you speak to Him about it and would you share it with someone else? Ask them to pray for you specifically about that thing. You can do that right after the service. If you do so, you would have taken one more step into the good life. And as we trust in God in these and other ways, we can be assured that His steadfast love will surround us because we are in Christ. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.